0: They're bad. They're boys, and occasionally they talk about running. Yes, it's the Bad Boy Running Podcast with your hosts Jody Rainsford and David Heller. Come back. Baby, come back. But bye, 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 bye. But bye, 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 bye. I must admit, I was. Will- Hello, Drew Badders, welcome to Bad Boy Running. As you know now, we just hit you with the interviews as their their own episode, and we've got the bad bits split up. So we're going straight into the interview. And there's sometimes you read about someone that you think, oh man, I wish that person was still alive. They'd be so good to get on the podcast. And then someone writes a book about them. And you think, brilliant, we'll pretend. That's the same person, and we'll get the writer of the book on to tell us all the stories of just their life. So welcome on the podcast, the amazing Jared Beasley. Yay! Hello, gentlemen. It's great to be on. Thank you for having me. How, um, I've read a bit about your background. How did you end up kind of doing running journalism?
1: Well, it started with Howie. It started with the guy, actually, that got me on the Howie trail. He started me running and whatnot, and, um, So when I wrote the book about Howie, I did um, an excerpt for Runner's World. And Mm. after that, some of the editors there started hitting me up. And there was a really cool guy named Memo who was a porter over in Queens. He was 47 years old. And he was running faster each year in the marathon. And he was running the fastest times for any 40-year-old in in the world. And uh, they wanted to figure that out. And (laughs) that was real fun. Went over there, spent time with him. And then one thing ticked off after another with, with magazines, but it really came from that excerpt with Howie. Mm. And then how, like how is, because we've both, Jodie's written more, but we've both
0: written at Times for, I guess, magazines over here. But, and it seems like the the running media is really changing in, in the UK, um, a lot more clickbait for, and, and looking for online, and then just a lot harder to actually, there's just, Fewer listeners, fewer mags oh, harder now. Harder to um,
2: read. That's what you're about to say. It's harder, harder to read, read than, yeah. than it used to be. <laughs> yeah,
0: but is is that the same in the states? Like, do do you are there more than just Runners World out there? And
1: definitely. And they each go about it uh, in a different way. Uh, I'm not sure what Runners World is doing this year after the mm-hmm. pandemic, but they were posting all the articles online first, and then they would choose from those articles which one would then go to print. Oh, really? Uh, really? And, that's interesting. Uh, so, because I know
0: that the U.S. one has a, you can have, like, is it Runners World Plus content, premium content? Exactly. Exactly. Is that, is that how they then ensured that
1: people would still buy the magazine? Mm, that's one way, I suppose. They had a lot of other perks that go with the Runners World Plus uh, features of certain Plus members that go into the magazine we have trail runner magazine which is doing really good i have an article coming out uh in the next i guess the next issue not the one that's mm-hmm. coming out currently but the next one on uh, rob apple i don't know if you've ever heard of rob apple aye, aye. well if i were to ask you how many ultras has it, it is like the most anyone has ever run in their life like total number added up like al howie is nothing compared to this guy it would be rob apple what would the number be? I actually was asking some people this uh, very question this morning at a coffee shop and their numbers were like just pitiful low. So give, oh. give it a shot. How wow. many ultras? You've got to wonder. What it... Apple?
2: Well, we're,
1: about, we're about to find out maybe. <laughs> he's, he's, in his, he's in his late teens. He's, uh, he's, he's... <laughs> his mum was question, pregnant
0: with him. Right. <laughs> um, 7.59. 7.59. 59 and so was was he was he working full time for that he still is working full time
1: wow so it, it, i guess a few double weekends and he found well his motto is speed kills and so he started doubling up on weekends he's been running ultra since 1982 he'll be 60 this year and his biggest enemy now are, are cutoffs so his numbers mm. are dropping but i think his high for one year was 42 ultras in a year. And I'm he's blessed. always at the back. He doesn't care what, about winning the race.
0: What is it for him, do you think, that that means he, he's not content with 20 ultras a, in a year?
2: Does he hate his family? That's the other
0: <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> Is he on the I run? The I police?
2: think most, most dads here or, or, or mums can totally understand that level of commitment if your family are, are that bad.
1: He's a guy that loves to be out there. He just wants to keep being out there as long as he can. He's one of the happiest people I've ever seen in my life. He's like Pollyanna. Everything is sunshine. You expect rainbows to like shoot out of his eyes at any moment. He's just that kind of guy. He wants to be around the people. He wants to do as many as possible. And he's also a numbers guy. He's an accountant by day. So he wants to do 1,000 races, 1,000 ultras. But right now it's not looking good. He only did, I think, three last year, signed up for four this year. but so the pandemic has really taken a hit on that. So he started, how old did you say he was, 60, 70? He'll be 60 this year. Okay. So he started
0: almost when he was twenty-one. Uh, um gosh that's some math isn't
1: it um yeah, yeah, yeah he was in
0: the bad. early 20s yeah okay so actually what'd be interesting someone like walter handloser uh who you know, did 50 hundreds in a year he's almost in a lifestyle now where he he was looking at how he could back that up next time and so he's someone you could see spinning out and suddenly seeing a record like that thinking right. Maybe that's something to focus on. Um, and what are the what are the kind of weirdest like, has, uh, two questions? What are the weirdest stories you've had um, outside of, uh, of of out and and also have have the requests and also what you think the reader is looking for changed since you kind of started writing about running?
1: Hmm. It, it has been changing, but let me let me say that first. Let me answer your second question first. So it, it has been changing i I think that the of course the trail we all know this that the trail is really becoming so much more popular, and I think there you know from my perspective there's some reasons for that, and I think that directly ties into Howie maybe we can get into that later, so there's definitely more room in your everyday running magazine what I mean is like people that usually cover your you know, 5Ks, your tracks and and, uh, the Olympics, these kind of things. Runner's World does a lot of that. But you'll see them focusing a lot more on, at least feature-wise, which is what I do, on ultra runners, trail runners, Mm -hmm. uh, people that are outside the box a little bit. Though I think that trend is unstoppable. I think that is a good thing because I think that more options uh, that are out there, the more people can express themselves through running, and that's what how he represented it to me but we'll get into that in a bit it as far as the weirdest story i i'd I have to there's a lot so it's a tough one to choose i'd have to say bobby wise bobby wise was a race walker mm. but he had had some kind of head injury and his head would drop down when he walked and they Shishimoy, the Moy team told him he mm. should put a toilet paper roll under his chin to keep and tape it (laughs) (laughs) to keep himself from running into trees, which is what he was doing. And he did that. And he taped it and he does, you know, hundreds of miles. He wouldn't stop. He was, was, he got put in uh, an asylum one time when he was doing a race across Washington state because they didn't know what he was doing. You know, they didn't, he couldn't explain himself. He was doing this, this race across Washington. He was all the way in the back because he was a race walker. He wasn't a runner. And it wasn't until he got a call from the governor that his dad had made some calls and they got him out of there. And the people that had, you know, taken him, the policemen were all just mystified, you know, that this guy was actually wasn't a race because they thought he was certifiable. But he used to, uh, you could be seen at Trishamoy races, eating dog food. Uh, <laughs> there was a, <laughs> it's true. Uh, Trishal Churns, I don't know if you know him. He's uh, one of, Canada's also one of Canada's best ultra runners. And he's still quite prolific. But he had a dog named Dharma. And Dharma would run a lot of these Rishimoi races with him. He would do hundreds of miles. He was a great runner, Dharma. And he was in magazines. And um, actually, when I was researching the Howie book, I found some kind of publicity outlines where they wanted him to stop in certain areas. And one of them Involved Trishul, but it wasn't actually Trishul. It was the dog Dharma was the main thing, and it said, by the way, his owner Trishul is a big ultra runner himself. So Dharma was quite a thing, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and of course Dharma had a little food bowl there. And one day while they're doing the, you know these thousand mile races, you're talking about days, days and days, thirteen hundred miles, and then it got all the way up to thirty six hundred miles, you know, right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Bobby Wise is over there. On all fours, eating out of Dharma's bowl, <laughs> Trishal, Trishal stops and says, hey, what, what are you doing, man? That's my dog's food. He says, well, it seems to be working for him. <laughs> Does that,
0: like, I mean, it was, why did he genuinely afterwards then use dog food as race nutrition, do you think? Or was no, it more no. story, Okay.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, I think that you know when you you get in those races, you get into some funny places in your head. Yeah. And yeah. Bob was already in a funny place when he started the race. So it just yeah, I never read of him winning any races, but he put up some serious miles. He wouldn't give up. And then yeah. after it was over, he wouldn't stay for any kind of awards. He'd get in his station wagon and he'd drive off. Wow. Just for the just for the love of it. Back then, it was really a lifestyle, and that's something that's different. And that's that's a little bit hard to describe because it's very much a lifestyle now, isn't it? Runners and ultra running or whatever Mm -hmm. kind of running that you do, the way we eat and all that. But what I mean is that back then with the people that were doing these multi-day races, you're talking about spending 17 days, 17, 18 days away from work, away from Mm -hmm. family, going around a one-mile track. So you really can't have much of a life okay, mm. if you're going to continue to be doing those throughout the year. So the food that they give the, the, at the race, during the race, running became a way of sustaining yourself in a way. The longer you could stay in it, the, the longer you could keep getting fed. Emil Larag, uh, another runner at that time, he was in it for the food. Wow, who
2: isn't? Who isn't? Like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, is there another motivation? <laughs> but do you, do you, like you, you just said there that you know um, something like um, uh, Runners World or the magazines um, cover the sort of the traditional five k and everything else, um, but the features are more held over for um, uh, trail runners and ultra runners. Is that because there is? Um, much more intrigue around um, either their motivation or the or, or the or the huge variables are involved in terms of the training what what do you think drives the interest in, in 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 those two aspects in terms of the features is it just more of an understanding that people want to get or is it just because they're doing things which are more expansive and over different places it it just makes for a, a far more interesting read than reading about a you know someone yeah, pushing performance
1: in a 5K? Sure, sure. I would say the latter. But I wouldn't say that they are holding over features for ultra runners or trail runners and things like that. They do plenty on the 5K people and stuff like that. It's just that you see more ultra runners and trail runners pop into the features now. You're able to get mm. them to um, take it into consideration. Like getting an Apple, uh, getting an Apple, getting a story on somebody like Rob Apple was, would have been very difficult a few years ago, I think. He's never had a big feature. I mean, the guy's done 759 ultras, though so he's never won anything. He's not a – well, he has. He's won a few races, but small ones. But um he, he's not somebody that you would see on the cover of magazines generally, and there were not many uh, written about him at all. So to have someone like him in a story, it, it's very – of course, there's a lot more – I don't want to say more but there's the possibility for a lot more mm. uh, nuance in yeah. someone's life and what's driving them so the features tend to be driven by people like i was mentioning memo earlier he is a porter so he was an illegal immigrant he was actually arrested and put in jail for several years and his drive to be successful in the united states and his story of immigration and being away from his family and his mother, and what they meant to him. And then after her passing, him then becoming faster and faster. It became a very personal story. So even though he didn't have any sponsorships and he hadn't run an ultra, uh, he made a very interesting story. So the features Mm. tend to go that way. And I think that because of the rise in trail runs and slowly the rise in ultras, because I, I think there were two real heydays of what I call like mega distance, mega distance running, so six days or more, mm. and we're not we're not quite back there to that at all. But ultra running itself is growing, and I think because of that, you're seeing uh, some editors giving a second look. Okay, yeah, maybe we'll do a feature on this guy. You said the heyday. When was the heyday? Well, there were really two. One was back in you know the gosh what was it, the late nineteenth century. And then you had when you had the pedestrians, so they were doing six day races in Madison Square Garden, they were doing them in England, they had um the Aston Belt races, you know, Weston, all these guys are putting up some incredible numbers. Actually, some of those records didn't fall until just a few years ago, and then it died out. There was the Trans Am, and, and who
0: were those? Who were the pedestrians? Were they? Were they kind of working class people? Were they people who were rich who could afford to do it? Were they? You know, was Was there a, a typical,
1: a typical identity of that community? That That's a great question. Those guys were actually professional, which is something they, they made more money back then doing pedestrian these race walks than anybody makes today. Those guys were not getting just a free pair of shoes and a power bar. They were getting paid serious money, like. You could get a home and some cars with that. Well, they didn't have um, cars back then, but you could now, even now, with the money they were making. Was that because of gambling? Or... That's right. That's right. So it was uh-huh. a, a big spectator sport, and it died out really with the bicycle when it came in. The bi- The bicycle oh, really did away with that. Always the
2: way. <laughs> 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 they ruin everything. These
1: yeah, yeah, they did. And also the rules got to be too much. and uh, But then the... the The really the next rise of it, there was a little brief moment where it it looked like it might come back in the 20s when they had Mm -hmm. the Trans America, and they had those races across the United States. They did that for two years, I believe, 28 and 29, but uh, there was no boom. But then in the 80s, that's when you really get the second real gold of age of these multi-day races, mega distance races. Tricia Moy did the first certified thousand mile race Pioneers like Don Choi, Trishel Churns, these people, they lived this lifestyle, and they had the kind of lifestyle. Like Don Choi was a, a postal worker. He was a postman in San Francisco, so he'd go up and down those hills all the time, mm-hmm. and he was able to get away from work long enough to do these races somehow. And so everything in their life was geared around these races. So the money that they spent or the, the money that they didn't spend, everything was geared towards mm-hmm. getting themselves yeah. to these races and, and living there uh, for days, and um, it create it, it created the kind of environment for some le- somebody like Howie to show up. And be- before we go on to Harry, d-
0: with the the pedestrians, and did did you get a sense that it, does anyone know whether they were following trading plans and whether they potentially had discovered elements about trading or nutrition that have been lost because when you have such a long gap obviously that's not passed on to anyone. So is that known at all? It is.
1: Uh, Andy Milroy is a great source of information on the pedestrians, and there have been numerous books written about the pedestrians. They took more than your legal share of stimulants. (laughs) <laughs> just to say that, oh, I, I think it a... yeah, yeah, I think back then really like was on They were in many ways. <laughs> they, they, they were, but when you see their numbers, it's... it's they were astounding. East German and Russian, were they? <laughs> Well, I'm not going to comment on that, but... Uh, <laughs> later, and, and when later, you, when you video, say when you see their numbers, as in just total, total mileage or, or other aspects? The total mileage is astounding, so for six-day numbers, Talking about doing some incredible, incredible over 500 miles. It's it's, and it's, it's phenomenal. And do you think
0: there's, because I can imagine some drugs would give you a performance enhancement for really long periods that would be far better than like an EPO, because it, you're right. then counteracting tiredness. and um, Yeah, do, do you think there are some records that w- you couldn't really – attack now unless you were prepared to be a little bit naughty
1: uh they've all been broken okay yeah they've all been broken but there are a couple i'm not an expert on the pedestrians like i said there are people like andy milroy Mm. and several others even joe fegis um he's a perhaps america's best multi-day runner and he's quite accomplished and he's also a big student of the pedestrians and those guys really know every last detail about it and I don't want Joe to listen and then uh, send me a, <laughs> a, a, a naughty email. But they, um, yeah, they had some numbers, there was a, a couple of numbers there that have only been eclipsed by very few people.
0: Oh, well, if, 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 if either of you are listening, then uh, get in touch because we'll do an episode on the pedestrians as well in the future because they sound amazing. Um, so when, when did you first hear
1: about Al then? Uh, From my neighbor, the guy that was living in the 80-square-foot apartment right next to my (laughs) 80-square-foot apartment. We shared a bathroom. He was utterly insane. He was the guy that your mother told you to stay away from. He had this little tiny mohawk on his head that you could tell that he made himself because it was never quite straight. He was (laughs) tiny, but he was just full of muscle. There wasn't an inch of fat on him. He was in his late 50s in this Carnation of him. He had gold gold skulls for teeth. I'm not joking, and he smelled like hardcore two three day old alcohol and sweat mixed together. And I immediately didn't like this guy and felt like most of us would feel. You know, we hear that description and we would. This guy's not going to be a good neighbor. Mm. I you know there I've talked I've said this a couple of times and it, it to some other people and it it always trips me up because it's so tough to. Describe why You decide to trust somebody Mm. With something that's sensitive to you And that's a big part of The passion that I put The the reason why I wanted to do The Howie book later on Was because somehow I wound up trusting this guy With the fact that I Was almost paralyzed with panic attacks After moving to New York City From Alabama I had come there to be an, an actor My world had crumbled all of my family was back in alabama and i was really a hot mess i drank myself to get out of it i I took some whatever stimulants myself you know to kind of numb the experience that was going on and i didn't really have anybody that i could talk to but this guy was he was bizarre i i thought he was a pathological liar when i first met him he was talking about the jungles and he had this big strong french accent and uh he would talk about living in papua new guinea and the amazon and i thought he was just like some some of these people i knew back in alabama until he brought down a portfolio of pictures Uh, it's just unbelievable of him with these native people aboriginal people in these places with spears and with the tarumara indians you know from born to run back in the Mm -hmm. 80s in their all their wardrobes and things like that and it really blew me away, and I wound up sharing what I was going through with him. And um, he became a, a, a good, a very good friend of mine. And I wound up wanting to write about him. And I'm still writing about him secretly. Only secret to him, I, we all know. But <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm saying it, or I've also, I've written an article recently, a, a, a kind of uh, as a preview for, Do you for in this book. the Foreign book. Legion, or just an explorer? He was an explorer, in fact, that's the way he signed his occupation when he signed up for races, he was an explorer. But he was really, he's just a really cool dude, and uh, he didn't want me to write about him. He said, if I wanted to write about anybody, I should write about Al Howie. I didn't know who that was. I I started looking for this guy, and he said, if you find him, please let me know, because I want to talk to him. And it seemed, he got really emotional about it. And so I I was pretty good with a computer, so I started, looking for this guy, Howie, and then I found him, and he was in this home, and that's how the whole thing started, and then I couldn't, really couldn't believe what he had done. It was, the guy next door to me, I found out, after I finally got his name, I found out the kind of running he had done, which was a lot of these 1,000-mile races, running across America, the Marathon Sabre, and I, that blew my mind because I had never even run a marathon at that time. But when I mm. found Howie, it was like, oh, this is what? <laughs> this is this is something else. This is almost artistic in a way. Is this possible? And, and when he, and did you did what was the first
0: thing you did? Did you try and reach out to him, or were you more gonna observe just from his his records as such?
1: Well, there was a very large wiki page on him, fortunately. At that time I, it, it was very long it still is very long could not believe the things i was reading and the look of him those two things put together along with my friend's recommendation which he doesn't give recommendations lightly he's uh, he, he's really an irritable kind of guy my neighbor <laughs> <laughs> he's got something against the world and uh it, it made him quite interesting he, he really is a a loner so when he recommended somebody like al howie or he says that somebody out there is is the real deal in his, the way that he put it. Mm. That meant a lot to me. And then when I saw all the stats that were on the wiki page, and then the pictures that I found of him, it, and there was nothing written about him, there was just huge lights going off in my head, but I had no idea where the story was going to go. At that moment, it was just how can this be, who can do this? And and uh, before we kind of go on to more of that
0: story, what, um, what percentage of that wiki page would you say you still think is true? Like uh, was, was it a typical wiki page where there was a lot of <laughs> creative
1: license or was it actually quite well researched? Uh, it was incredibly well researched. It proved out to be 99.9% accurate. Wow. The, the only, the, basically the only thing that I found was the it was done by a man named Dr. Eugene Bannerman, and he took care of Howie in the home personally, up there in British Columbia. And he took a real liking to Howie. So he got a lot of firsthand stuff before Howie got too sick. And it's invaluable. He really helped the project so much. And you know what? I accidentally forgot to credit him in the book. (laughs) I don't know. The book took five years, and I'd only talked to him really in the beginning, and I felt so bad about it. But the only thing that I found really that was different was uh, his marathon PR was listed, I think, as 228. It might still say 228. It was 229. Okay. Which, yeah, given, other... given
0: everything else, <laughs> it's a small thing to...
1: <laughs> there's a lot of documentation that I was able to find in the five years of doing the book, and I put it up on... There's a Facebook page for Howie, and I put a ton of documentation up there that, that people can go look at. It, it really is unbelievable, the, the stuff that he did. And the page, if anything, there was a ton of stuff that it left out, lots of runs that he did that were not in there.
3: Mm.
1: He leaves out a lot of things. And and why why did it take five years? Is it it just hard to
0: research certain information or just to fit in with your lifestyle or because there was so much to
1: research? Roadblocks, massive roadblocks. The first one being Al Howie. He couldn't speak. He couldn't communicate, really. Uh, He could talk, but it was uh, mumbling. He had a real thick brogue when I first started talking with him. And, man, when we first started, I thought, this is not going to go anywhere. This is not going to work. And it it was a real struggle. (laughs) And you would drop the phone. You would hear it bounce off the table. And the nurse would come back on and go, oh, that's great. That's the best he's done in a long time. I was like, wow. Wow, this is gonna be hard. And what what did he have what was wrong with him at that stage? Was it old time Alzheimer's or um... no, no. Um Al Howie had mental illness. And it basically started taking over slowly taking over his life at age 40. So if you were you know, if you were to say to somebody, if you could possibly say to somebody when they're born, by the time you're 40, you're going to start slowly going crazy. Live your life the way that you want. I, th- even though he didn't know that, I th- he lived like subconsciously, like somewhere inside of him, it was like that.
0: But uh, and and do you think then, if if he hadn't had that mental illness, would would his life story have been very different? Do you believe in the events he did, how
1: extreme he was in attending them? Uh, Certainly it would have been different from 40 on. But uh, that's just impossible to answer. I really Mm. don't know how it could have shaped up for him. Um, It wasn't evident, like I said, until, well, actually, it didn't become evident until uh, after he was around 50. uh, In his early 50s, it started to really rear rear its head. But when I was researching the book, you would find signs of it. Uh, early on around 1985 he did a run that pushed everything that he had done at that time and really ever would that run almost killed him in 1985 he tried to run well his original idea was to take off from british columbia and start running east go all the way to the east coast take a right turn then run all the way down the east coast of the united states the east coast of south america tierra de fuego turn around run up America, West Coast of the United States, back to B.C. Wow. And that is one
2: round it, trip.
1: Yeah. yeah. Did, he, <laughs> did he make it? Uh, nowhere near. He had no crew. He had nothing. At that time, and we're talking about somebody's ratio at that time in ultra races. He just thought he was uh, immortal at that time. Uh, he had letters that he was given by certain uh, political figures to take across Canada, and he made it all the way to Ottawa. Some, uh, It's over 2,000 kilometers. But he then entered a 24-hour race, Shishimo, a 24-hour race, won that with 121 miles, which is what is that in kilometers. Oh, we're miles. We're miles as well. It's fine. Oh, God (laughs) God bless you, you're miles. Oh, it's (laughs) awesome. Uh, So he did 121 miles, really bad showing for him, but he had just run, you know, uh, what is that? Over 1,300 miles on his own, sleeping on the sides of the roads, things like that. And, um, yeah, that one, he was a skeleton. He ran out of town the next day after the 24-hour race, and he was on death's door. And then he created this story that he had gotten cancer, brain cancer. And he told everyone that, magazine interviews, and that story went and was never refuted. Now, that's one thing that you'll find on the wiki page that's still there that is false. He never had brain cancer. He may, he may have believed that he had brain cancer, but he never even went to a doctor. He never had a blood test, nothing. Do you think that – did he say that, do you think, so that he could stop? Oh, I think he said that. That's a very good question. Hmm. Maybe. I think that that's reasonable. He had to Hmm. stop. That's for sure. And what he had done to get there was not going to earn him any awards. Nothing. You know, it wasn't Hmm. going to get him any money, any sponsorships. He was it called it the celebration of life. He was running supposedly for uh, the starving children in Ethiopia at that time. And um, yeah.
0: And was that, like' because now FKTs are so well known and, and people have these motivations and it's almost more of a accepted um, format that you take on a big challenge, you try and get in a lot of media, you maybe raise money for charity, but actually you maybe just raise your profile so that you can go to talks, you can sell a book, you can maybe get on TV. Was he doing anything like like that with his challenges or were they
1: just because he wanted to do them? At that time, no, not at all at at that time. And uh, that would change by the time he does it in 1991, he runs across in 72 days that then he had extensive media coverage because in 85, you had, um, really, what they like Fanyo Fever, they call it. Steve Fonio had uh, finished Terry Fox's run. Do you remember Terry Fox, the guy who'd lost his I, leg? I know the tra- name.
0: Yeah, um, but he, he's, he's massively uh, popular in Canada, isn't he? Uh, tell us the story of oh, him as well for the, for the listener that they've made. Oh,
1: know. God. Uh, if somebody asked me, the greatest runner of all time, I'd have to say Terry Fox. Uh, it's unbelievable. The, he was 20, 20, 18? I can't remember, but he, he was extremely young. He lost his leg to cancer. And then he decided that he was going to run across canada and try to raise a dollar for every person in canada for cancer research and um just their video there's there's a video of it and it it really will grab you just thinking about it it makes it makes my skin stand because seeing him kind of he didn't have the legs that they have today he's hopping and skipping on this stump and he only Mm -hmm. made it a little over halfway and the cancer came back he had to quit And then he died after that. He is a legend in Canada. He inspired so many people, and he wound up raising enormous amounts of money after he he died for cancer research. And so then in 1985, a guy named Steve a really controversial kind of guy, also had lost his leg, uh, completed the run. But he was, so if I back up a half a second here, Fox was doing a marathon a day. The Stefano guy comes along and he's it didn't matter what he was doing, like three miles that day or whatnot. But he kept going until he finished. And so then that started this craze of running across Canada. And so how he kind of piggybacked on that. And you had another guy, Rick Hansen, in the wheelchair uh, that did went around the world. He's a big figure in Canada today as well. So then this. The, so Fox really started this media idea of doing these FKTs and getting some publicity behind it it really started uh, kicking in and people got a template for how to do it. But uh, Howie didn't follow that at all in 85. All he did was there was no FKT, there was no media. There's a, I found one picture of him with an older lady, I think at a library. He's in like a, a wool or cotton, cotton sweater that says Al Howie on it. And um, it was just horrible. He just almost killed himself. And but in '91, he would change that up, he would do it t- way differently. So, kind of going back then, like how did he,
0: how, how did he, um, well, there's a bit of a story for him ending up in Canada with uh, changing names and things, and then how did he get into
1: these ultras? What was his trigger? His trigger was trying to quit smoking, but I think there was a lot more going on with him, but that was always his answer. And um, he was a three-pack-a-day smoker. Before that, he had been doing heroin, a lot of other things. So um, there are a lot of tricky things. Wait, a minute. How things. does he get
2: into that? What, like, what's the, what's the? What, I mean, what, what is his background before that? What's his? How
1: does anybody get into heroin? I don't know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, his background was growing up in Scotland. He was, uh, he was really a hippie sort. He was a bookish yeah. guy always had a book in his hand and he was always a little bit of an outsider eccentric odd um, you guys would know this much better than I would and I hesitate to say these kind of things because I, it makes me nervous but uh, his family was very Victorian yeah. if that yeah you know and uh, so somewhat strict and, um, to it wouldn't, mm, wouldn't
2: it
1: yeah exactly so he takes off and he's bouncing around Germany uh, for various jobs labor jobs that he could do he liked monotonous jobs like working on a line, something that didn't engage his brain. He could just do over and over and let his mind wander. Mm. Met a lady, got married, had a baby, and she was big time into um, drugs. She got into it. And then what happens is he takes the kid when the the kid's four years old. This is about 1972. He just leaves a note, like, going fishing type thing, and takes the boy, and it has gone. Wow. And I got his passport. He originally went to Amsterdam, was there for a little while, bounced down through Turkey, Greece, then came back and stayed in Turkey and wound up staying there for two years or so. Meets a Canadian woman. And in Turkey, they, they used to say, Interpol used to say at that time, if you wanted to get away with something and not be found, go to Turkey. So <laughs> that combined with, with Al's hippie lifestyle. Uh, just made Turkey a perfect place for him at that time. He said that she was in really bad shape, his ex-wife, and from the mm. people that I interviewed, that was also the case. And all I can say to that is that Interpol did finally catch up with Howie, and to my astonishment, they didn't do anything to him. They didn't take the kid or anything. They actually reprimanded her So it turned out that, you know, he hadn't been in school. He was only four. So she made up a story that he was in school and whatnot. It's just a real ball of craziness going on how that happened. And trying to unpack all that was a real job. But he um, moved to Canada with this lady from Turkey. Did did he move with his child as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, his name is Gabe. Mm -hmm. And he's in the U.K. Now he's back in Scotland. He... um, he stayed with Howie until he was uh, about 18 years old, something like that, and he got deported. Mm. That was a big life-changing moment for for Howie. Also, drugs. So, oh wow! So,
0: so, neither of them were in Canada legally, and that's right. Because, and then because he'd done drugs, he he was then they could chuck him out on the grounds of being arrested. That's right. That's exactly right. Wow! I mean, that's. That seems crazy. I don't think that could happen now, could it, if you've been from a child mm. in a country? It could definitely happen
1: in this country, I believe.
3: Could it? Yeah, Maybe I'm being I, I naive
1: don't... about our own laws. Um, the immigration wow. situation in the United States is is pretty strict for some people. I think it depends on where you come from, but uh, that would be an excuse to get somebody out. It's, it's, it's a crime, it's a felony, because I think he was... The, the idea was, and this story was told to me by a couple of people, but the main story came from Howie's ex-wife slash wife Mm. um they never actually got divorced but they separated and she she believed that it was a setup he was so he was trying to sell some pot to somebody so because he was trying to sell it that's distribution which is a much higher crime and then Mm. he was illegal on top of that and he got shipped out there was nothing they could do they tried
0: Wow. And that changed.
1: That, that was another big turning point. Now this is right. but This is two years before Howie really does uh, reaches his climax, if you will, in his running career. We're talking about running over nine thousand miles. So we're doing nine thousand kilometers. Sorry. So for miles, fifty-eight hundred miles in mm. one hundred and three days. So he ran across Canada. That and broke and set the FKT there. Two weeks later. He's at the 1,300-mile race in Queens, breaks the world record there in 16 days, 23 hours. And so putting those two things back to back, is that's what blows my mind. It's totally mm. unique. And it's all spurred on to me by what happened with his son, Gabe. And it just happened. So it's almost as if his response to that
3: mm.
1: in his own mind, how he could deal with it. And had, had you, have you managed to chat to Gabe at all or to get from him a sense
0: of, okay?
1: No, not at all. He didn't want any part of the book. He was really resentful of his father and the way that he was brought up. A lot of pain. A lot, it hurt a lot of people. How he loved I, him the way that he could. but he, But Gabe was really dropped and left with various people all the time, different people always on the move, never having any kind of sense of stability because of how his lifestyle, his running, mm-hmm. his partying. You know, he was a massive drinker that went on and on and on and on. It was a big part of his running in the first part of his career.
0: And um, how did he fund all of this then? Was he still doing labor jobs and similar he things was. in
1: America? Well, in, in Canada, yeah, he was. Okay, yeah. Um, His main job in Canada that saw him through the, the, his peak years was foresting, so planting trees, tree planting. It, it was also a very active job. Yeah. You, you're going up and down these hills planting, you know, tons of trees all the time. It's, it's amazing. But they were very lax with him. He was a very likable person, actually. He was very charming. He used to be mm. extremely talkative. He was not that way when I encountered him. But there's a lot of video out there of him. And it's amazing how witty, chatty, quick, well read he was. And it's it's easy to see why people were drawn to him.
0: And and when he started doing these longer races, was like how competitive were they and how much knowledge was there about how to train, how to race, race nutrition? Um
1: yeah, yeah. They're, uh, nothing like today, of course. Mm. You know, they didn't have, uh, you know, gels. Uh, the, the idea of um, supplementing while you're running was something that they were all learning for themselves on their own. You know, there was, a, of course, some literature about how to maintain a good diet, pre-race meals, how to recover, things like that. But uh, going beyond the marathon, there was really no clue, at least in in the literature, how to to keep pushing on how to supplement the body so Mm. that you can do something like that. And he was doing it on his own before he was doing these journey runs, extremely long runs up and down the Vancouver Island over there in British Columbia before he ever entered a race, which happened to be with Terry Fox. It was Terry Fox's first race, the guy with the leg, you know, that lost his leg and went across Canada. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and it was he happened to be there in that moment. Howie got third. It was his first race, and um, he was there that night when Terry Fox announced that he was going to. He was so moved by what he had done that he felt that if he could do that, he could do anything. And he then, you know, like we talked about earlier, made his attempt across Canada. So that moment really stuck in Howie's mind. He was really moved by that. The, that this is not something that was like other running ventures doing something to break Mm. a record or for which how he would become very obsessed with in his own way of course but but doing something you know with something inside of you that's pushing it but getting out there and doing something because it hasn't been done Mm.
2: did did, uh, the run at you he obviously gave the reason that you know he was he started ultra running in order to get rid of the three packets a day did he find did he, you know, did some of those habits drop away as a result of that, or did he maintain all of those things while while doing the running as well? Did it did it not quite work out as he expected?
1: Uh, he's a local legend in British Columbia over there for drinking and running. I mean, he he never really dropped <laughs> yeah, that. Legends and legends
2: in this country as well.
1: So maybe <laughs> on the same level. Yeah, not not the running um, bit. Yeah,
2: not the running bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he um he dropped the smokes. That, that's really – he did it. Yeah, and uh, he, he got really aggressive when he quit smoking. Yeah. <laughs> he he felt like he wanted to just knock people out for no reason, and um, he had to do something. He had to do, he really had to, to, to get this aggression out, so he started running in, like, jeans and, you know, just regular loafers or, or work boots, whatever. And he started running to work and back, and then these guys made a bet with him. He became – you know, he's kind of uh, – Hard guy to overlook, you know, with his hair, and he looked like Brian Jones back in the day. And um, and so they bet him that he couldn't run to Niagara in a day. This was when he was living in Toronto, and that's about ninety miles. Wow. Okay. And so, so they they bet him some beer. <laughs> where,
2: where, where does that where does that kind of bet come from though like is it something that has been done as a race or is is it something that's drivable or you know what you don't or do go, you think it was, oh, was wait, it his not. bravado
0: kind of pushing it saying yeah i can do this yeah, yeah i can do that
1: yeah yeah it's uh, definitely his bravado he had that in spades yeah and, and a bunch it, of guys drinking you know and saying that you know and when you're in toronto Niagara is literally across the the massive lake there. So you go around this big crescent shaped highway. So it's easy to kind of look over there and go, I bet you can't oh, run over there in a day. And we're gonna <laughs> yeah. and we're gonna put we're gonna put a couple of packs of beer on the line. And he <laughs> goes, Yeah, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. 18, eight, eight, yeah, yeah, like eighteen hours if I remember right. There's a lot of numbers in the Howie story, but he did it. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Every year, thousands of ordinary, decent men succumb to a terrible, devastating disease. Brought on by middle-age angst, dissatisfaction with their life choices, and hatred of their families, these men are seduced by the lure of lycra and the opportunity to take revenge on the world by boring those close to them with their training plans. Triathlon could affect anyone. Don't let it affect you or your loved ones. Please give generously to the World Anti-Triathlon Society, or TWATS. Just £2 a week allows us to get into a transition area and switch around their swim-to-bike kit, thus creating enough confusion to force them to ponder their life choice. Donate today and let's kick triathletes in the saddle.
0: And how does how does the drinking fit in then with, with all these epic runs? Was it, would he drink during his kind of 3,000 mile? Sorry, kilometer races in?
1: Well, I want to back up from, like, 3,000 kilometer races. So when it, by the time he's doing running across Canada in the Trans, you know, Canada Run 91, all that, he had toned all that way down. But he's 46 in 1991 when he runs across Canada and then does that 1,300-mile race. So early on in his career, like after the Terry Fox run, mm. it was very much a part of him and the mystique that then was built around him. And then later it became a gimmick that he became very aware of. And then in 85, when he almost ran himself to death, he knew that if he wanted to keep doing it, he was going to have to get a hold of it.
3: Right.
1: So it's, it's really best that early time. I love it. You know, I love um, I love the mystique around it. And it's the best thing that I've seen is David Blakey's writing on it for what was it? Uh, Ultra Canada, Ultra Running Canada magazine. I believe David Blakey's a great writer. He's still alive. knew knew Howie very well, and his articles. I think in 1983, describing him showing up at Ottawa for the 24-hour race, and this guy with this long hair. He comes up with a beer in his hand, a pint in his hand. <laughs> Gabe is there with him. Gabe goes and stashes a pack of beer up in the stands, what they call the poverty pack. Instead of the six-pack, they were too poor for the six-pack. You would take two <laughs> beers out. You would pay for the four beers. Gabe stashes that up in the stands. How he gets to the line, people are stretching. People are starting to warm up. How he does none of that. He's just knocking back a beer. And then when they start, he just takes off. And he's just lapping people and lapping people and lapping people. They, they think this guy's going to drop dead. Yeah, this, this guy's an idiot. They'd never seen him, you know, before and he does the first marathon under 3 hours in a 24-hour <laughs> race <laughs> yeah. but but he doesn't stop he he keeps going keeps going he does 100 does 150 miles which back then yeah. was 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 it was a North American record at that time wow so there's there's nobody there really pushing him you know so we don't and, really know what he could have done in the 24-hour range and do you think
0: was was that just because he wanted a beer, or was that a his showmanship, or was that his kind of psychological uh, strategy?
1: Uh, ooh, it became a strategy. He, he became very aware of it afterwards when he was on the winner's podium and everybody's looking at him kind of dumbfounded. He knew that suddenly he had kind of created an image of himself, and that's something that he would have to live up to. But he did it as he liked to drink a beer before a race and then during the race, he said it put him in that evening frame of mind. And I think <laughs> that's I think exactly that... what
2: you want during a race, an evening frame of mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An evening frame of mind. And my way of thinking when I hear that is that he wanted it to be fun and mm. that it wasn't going to be work or pain or anything like that. Yeah. I want to go out there and, and escape and have a great time. And he was asked about weed at the same time, I think, by David Blakey. And he says, yeah, it makes a good time better. And, um, and do, you, do, you, do you think he liked
0: the, like, was it just he, he liked the attention or did it also serve him well
1: to have this reputation? Oh, it definitely served him well. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's not that he, like I said, he did it in the beginning because that was who he was. He was drinking all the time. Mm. He was partying all the time. He loved to drink. He loved to get high. He was a big hippie. But when the running came in, it was another high, right? I mean, it's Mm. another way of uh, escaping. And this image started to come up, and he loved that attention. People started writing about him. People started taking notice, and he was winning everything. And why would you want to change the formula if you keep winning? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And
0: and so Woods, when he then went to these longer challenges, runs across them, canada and, and various other things was that because what, what do you think drew him to that rather than winning races
1: um number one you have to understand that Howie was very constrained geographically so he was illegal he was using a name like ag Nielsen. um uh, he had all kinds he's using his brother's name at times mm. so he couldn't travel to do races couldn't travel into the United States. So everything was in Canada. And at that time, in the your ultras were like 50K and things mm-hmm. like that. And then you had the Shimoy races, 24-hour races. But he was winning every one that he entered. Uh, he was still running marathons in those early days. And um, then he was running, literally running, you know, over 1,300 miles all the way to Ottawa from the west coast of British Columbia. To do the 24-hour race, and then one time actually run back. It's it's unbelievable (laughs) to think about that. But it's it's really unbelievable to think about that. He got his first sponsor by a beer company, Miller Beer sponsored him on the run from uh, BC over to Ottawa, and they gave him as much beer as he wanted. And according to their rep that was interviewed, that he was doing like 17 beer a day. He was knocking back. (laughs) But how like, how did
0: that even work? Like, was he just staying knocking on people's doors to sleep? Was he running with a tent? Was he sleeping on the side of roads? And how was he picking oh, up his yeah. beer?
1: All, all of the – well, they were supplying the beer for that run. That was a very specific kind of one-off there. Uh, but it was all of the above as far as places to stay. He developed – and this is important for how later on he was able to to be so successful in his – FKT across Canada, because mm. he had run those routes for so long. He actually knew the roads. He had run them. <laughs> he knew the people. He's not going to Wow, yeah. But so he had friends scattered along that route, and uh, he would also sleep on the side of the road. He had a lot of experience doing that, even from the early days in Amsterdam when he took off with Gabe. They, they were sleeping in the park. He was in Turkey. They were sleeping in caves. They were sleeping out in the open. In Greece, you could sleep in these amazing sites back then. This is pre 9/11. You could go to, you know, some to ruins, you know, of ancient uh, mm. the Roman Empire, and you could sleep there and uh, see those amphitheaters and things like that. It was really, I found a, a lot of inspiration the way he, he talked about them, you know, and uh, running there. And uh, he he was not a runner at that time, but he mm. would. He would go on these these extensive treks. There's a, a actually a, a trail there in Turkey that goes all the way into gosh, I can't remember. It's it an extremely long route that he would hike, and it, it became the hippie trail that they became known as that. And uh, he would go on these things more and more to uh, escape. You know, I forgot what the original question was.
0: <laughs> and and so, so Canada back in the 70s, 80s, no, yeah. because I know when we spoke to people like Richard uh, running across Australia and, and, and various other things that some routes can be incredibly hard just because there aren't shops, there aren't towns, there aren't necessarily gas stations stopping. Right. Like was, is that the case in Canada? Would he, would he have to actually plan ahead certain aspects of it? And, and did you get a sense of how he was fueling during those times?
1: There was nothing. It's nothing like the run across Australia when you're going across uh, the desert there. Mm. It's nothing like that. You go through the plains area where it can be rather wide open. But um, it's just nowhere near the kind of planning from a planning perspective of what Trans-Australia would require. As far as his feeling, he ate. Crap! it's fish and chips. He'd eat just horrible, dirtbag stuff, <laughs> and the beer actually was a big source of calories for him at that time. This is all pre-85. So after 85, he changes up everything. Then you find him with, you know, miso soup and a bottle in his backpack, and not as much beer, but green tea and things like that. And do, do you know whether he was was he waking up with hangovers? I could only speculate there that he. He had to have been hungover. You can't drink that much beer and not be hungover.
2: Did it, when he when he switched then from um, basically having you know bringing his lifestyle into the running and then he switched over. Did was there a significant change in his performance or his outlook that, that, mm. that went with that?
1: Well, by that time, he. I think this is a question you asked a long time ago that I didn't get back around to. So please. <laughs> slap me from across the pond and wake me up because you were asking me how he got into the longer runs, I think, earlier. Um, It definitely had an impact. It allowed him to, the change, he could not have done the things that he did after 85 that he did without those changes. You just can't do that. You can't treat your body Mm -hmm. that way. He tried it, and it didn't work. He thought he knew what was best. He thought he could do anything, and he couldn't. And it was a big wake-up call. So it's not until... until 88, he goes back to Scotland. So he meets a woman. Well, gosh, so much, man. You hate to leave leave stuff out. How do you leave out that the guy ran 360 miles nonstop? How do you leave that out? So I could skip and we could go straight to 1988, and he goes back to Scotland for the the first time in forever, and it would be the last time he was in Scotland. That's where he does the lands into John O'Groitz, right? Yeah, yeah. And so... And then he gets the visa to come back because he met a woman, right? And that's why he's over in Scotland. And and then he comes back and he's able to go into America. He's able to go to New York and do these longer Shrishamore runs. And that's when really the mega, mega, mega distance starts to come in. But if I jump straight to that, I skip 1987. 1987, he meets this woman and they fall in love. She's like perfect. He needs somebody that's going to take care of him. She is somebody that likes to take care of people. So they're just a match made in heaven. They, they dated like two weeks and they're getting <laughs> married. So for their honeymoon, he decides he's going to do a nonstop world record breaking run. And he, and he runs around and this is extremely well documented. It's on, um, there was video, local news media was recording it. It was being studied by the university there in uh, Victoria. He he runs around this track, your regular 400 meter track, for 360 miles nonstop, on their honeymoon. Wow! How how long does that take? It took four and a half days. They had a trailer, and the trailer like they rented it for a certain amount of time, and then the trailer had to be taken away. <laughs> and then they had like like somebody like give them a tent, you know. Family members would come watch. It was. Was so much documentation for that run, and it's never been broken. It, and it was—it's—it's it's just a fantastic—it's it, a fantastic feat. And like, was there, was, were
0: there any—were yeah.
1: there any rules like he was allowed to get to
0: toilet breaks? You know, he was allowed to sleep yeah. for a few minutes, or he was—what no. like, were the limitations on that?
1: So he was going by Guinness's rules back then. But I don't know how you guys feel about that, but. Guinness had their own rules. People either love or hate Guinness. Yeah. Um, So back then, the nonstop run was a thing. It was a a really big thing. And there was a couple of guys that were going back and forth. So Howie had owned the record before, back when it was like 150 miles nonstop. And there was a guy, Phil Latulip, who's another great story. He had been going back and forth with Howie. So there were these rules. So you could stop five minutes per hour. Okay. or you could say or you could save up those 5 minutes let's say for 6 hours and then you could have a 30 minute break ah uh, okay and was
0: was that what he was doing and was he then trying to sleep or eat solids? Um, or?
1: yeah exactly yeah he would save it up he would go to the bathroom on the track there was a dark corner of the track but he had mastered that he said that he learned how to tie his shoes without stopping while he keep running and tying his <laughs> shoes but that, that's a real, uh, you know, amazing feat. And we don't know how much further he would have gone. The the record before that, you know, he had went over the record and then went a little more to give himself, you mm-hmm. know, a little cushion, as the way he put it. We don't know how, how far he could have gone.
0: We and really don't know. Why do you,
1: what do you think made him so good at
0: that type of event? Was he, was his top, because his top speed's good, but it's not. Not insanely good compared to stomach to runners now.
1: With speed when it comes to a run like that speed has nothing to do with it. Sure sure but,
0: but I mean I mean I mean more rather than the speed the fact that you've just got people who can run that fast have such a mm-hmm. a good gait and such a an efficient running run stride often. And like what
1: what do you think about him made him so good? I I think there's a combination of factors. Um, Athletically, physically, he had some advantages over your average runner that made him a good runner. Like you said, he was not elite. He didn't start running until much later in life. He was 35 Mm. years old when he, 34, when he ran his first race. So uh, he was getting into it later in life. But he was rather short. He was very skinny. And he had a wide ribcage. And he really was able to um, be very efficient mm. physically, but the, the the strength really is his is his mind, his is mindset, his ability to distract himself. I believe I don't think it's about focus. I think it's about in, in his case the ability to distract yourself from the pain and the boredom, mm. just to let your mind like like going back to those mundane factory jobs that he would do in Germany, just doing the same thing over and over and let your mind wander around. He became and, very, very good at that. And did you get a sense of where he would go in his mind? Oh, I wish. No, no. <laughs> I wish, I'd like to have a piece of that just to, to see what that was like. No, I don't. And and what was made of that record at the time? Would it have been headline news in, you know, across the States? No, no. He was never headline news across the states. Never. Uh, He was mentioned in the New York Times once that I found, and that was in the 1300 mile race. And he was mentioned in the next to last paragraph because Sandy Barwick had just set the the female record for for running that. She was the first woman to finish the 1300 mile race, which a quick, quick deal on the 1300 mile race. They do 3600 mile race now. Some people that know about these insane mega-distance races, Trishimoi 3600, longest certified race in the Mm. world, many people will tell you that have been a part of Trishimoi that the 1300-mile race was the most difficult one. And the reason was is that it had an 18-day cutoff. You're talking about averaging 70-something miles per day. Wow. Day after day after day. Is that the race that's around the block? Or is that different? Well, the 3600 is. They have that yeah. block, but they but they used to do it in another part of Queens around um, yeah. uh, over in Flushing Meadows over there. They have a course. It was like a thing I describe it in the book as like a pizza pie with like an arm hanging out. It was a really bizarre course. But anyway, Sandy Barwick had been the first woman to, to finish it when Howie did it in eighty nine. Uh, two years running, no one could do it. No one could finish it in the 18 days. And so when Sandy did it in 90, ooh, what is that? can't remember. 91. Um, that was big news, and that, that made the New York Times. And then Howie mm-hmm. was only interviewed in reference to her, and he was talking about how amazing she was. But he was never headline news, and he was mm-hmm. never big. He, he, David Blakey, who wrote for the magazines there in Canada, would write about Howie. In the local news, they, they filmed him, he was on TV. That video's on YouTube, you can just go to YouTube, type in Al Howie, you'll see some interesting videos. Um, but that one, no, he didn't get the recognition. And even when he ran across Canada, so you're talking about averaging over 63 miles a day, every day, 72 days in a row. He got the most publicity he ever got in his life. And it was in Canada, never bled over into the United States. Or back to his home country even now. in mm. Scotland, it you know, they don't know. They just don't know about him at all. And it's been a mission of mine to to get them to know more about him. And and how does it how does this story come to an end then? Like
0: how does he go from being this incredible runner to being in a home?
1: Yeah. It was abrupt. He in the end he just Stopped running. He came in one day and he stopped. And he believed that he was dying. He was absolutely obsessed with the fact that he was dying. He'd repeat it over and over and over again. His wife didn't know what to do with him. And he would say no to his running buddies, this and that, and the other. And he was driving her insane. She had a breakdown, and finally uh he was put in a couple of halfway houses to try to manage his condition. Electric shock treatment, you know, they the doctors uh, were stumped. They were stumped. Yeah. They didn't they didn't know. I mean, this guy didn't fit into their categories. He wasn't insane. He just believed that he was dying. And um the homes didn't work out. He would not take care of himself. They would mm. there would be a call by the neighbors, they would show up, he would be in a complete state of disarray. Now that time he had this rare form of adult set onset diabetes. He had had that for a few years, but he had been taking good care of that. That's not what mm. put him in the home. What put him in the home was is that he could no longer take care of that, and he could oh. no longer take care of himself, and he was absolutely obsessed that he was dying. What What age was that? Was that when he had, said he had brain
0: cancer, or was that different? Sorry.
1: But that's, uh, yeah, it's totally different. Yeah. So okay. that's 85. It gets confusing, man. I know. It, it really does, especially with the numbers and all that. But <laughs> in 85 – 85, he tries to run this incredible loop. He doesn't make it, but he runs most of the way across Canada. Mm. And he then convinces himself that he had a lump that developed on the back of his head. That we know. And he was certain that it was cancer. Um, But then you go up to 91, which is really his peak year, as far as what he was able to accomplish. This is right after his son was deported. He runs... The 92 Trans Am, when they revive it, Jesse Riley and Michael Kinney, they revived the Trans Am from the 1928, 1929 uh, Derby, the Bunyan Run, sorry, the Bunyan Runs mm. that we were talking about earlier. How he entered that, he was the clear favorite and he developed a monstrous set of blisters running across the desert. He wasn't prepared for the desert yeah. and he had to drop. And he believed after that in his own mind that that is what caused him to lose his health. It makes no sense, but I've had nurses, after the book came out, I've had a lot of nurses contact me that used to take care of Howie.
3: Mm.
1: And um, they would say, he would say over and over again, these things about the blisters, the blisters. And they didn't know what he was talking about. Mm. And it wasn't, wasn't fair, and he was... Very bitter about it, and he was talking about 92. And he started to slide in 92. He had somewhat of a comeback. He won four ultras um, right before he abruptly just stopped. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um,
0: and how how would you like him kind of to be remembered?
1: Oh, I don't know. That's a great question, and that's a tough question. Um I wrote the book in a way that I think is a little bit different than a a lot of other running books because he was so different. Mm. Um, He was so unique that I I tried to present several different perspectives of him and have Mm. people make up their own mind. I checked your Instagram page. I hope that's okay. Uh, before we we came on. Anyone who has. (laughs) (laughs) But somebody left a great comment there. Yeah. uh, Asking asking if I found myself able to like him. Yeah. And and absolutely I was able to like him. You can't spend five years writing a book about somebody and not like them. Were there a lot of things about him I disliked? Sure, he hurt a lot of people. Mm. but, But... but so did a lot of other people, and it's bizarre to try to compare a runner with an artist like, you know, Picasso or, mm. or Van Gogh or a writer like Ernest Hemingway or something. It's, it's r- ridiculous to try to do that, but I'm going to do it because yeah. they, they are out there trying to express themselves in a certain way. And that's just the best analogy I can think of at the moment. And they were dreadful people at times to be around I don't think that he was always dreadful to be around But he could be Mm. a real nuisance He could eat you out of house and home He could overstay his welcome He was not a good father I think he loved his son But I don't think that he had the skill set And I think that he was on a different path And for me I I want him to. I w- I wish that he could be remembered as someone that, that despite mental illness and despite a lot of other constraints on him, would found his way to express himself, mm. and express himself through running. In ways that other people really looked down on. You got to think that at that time. When he started, joggers were freaks.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, People were jogging around the road. You know, like, Who is this guy? People launching beer cans at you. And then when he starts running, and he's running the marathon, well, you've got to do this, this, and this to be good. He didn't do that. He'd run 200 miles a week and try. you got to stop doing that. He didn't stop doing that. He starts running 50-milers when they pop up. He starts winning those. And then other people say, hey, you could be really, really great at this 50-mile thing. You've got to stop. Doing this, this, and this. You've got to do more of this. He'd say no. And he would do 100 miles. Then you enter 24-hour races. And always there were naysayers telling mm. him not to do this. You've got to stop doing this. You, you've got to be, take care, better care of yourself. And maybe they were right if he only wanted to do that. Absolutely. You know, you don't want to be running 1,500 miles to a marathon. You don't want to do that to reach peak <laughs> performance. I definitely don't want to do that. <laughs> no, no, right? But he did do it, and I think he has a couple of records that still stand: the non-stop and um, the FKT across, you know, uh, Canada. And mm-hmm. those will fall, sure, they'll fall. But I, I think, to me, it's the the trail that he blazed of um, of originality. He, nobody had done it then, like that, mm. not the way that he not the way that he did it we We talked about andy milroy later he He said that it was epic when he did it, and it was back in a time, an unplugged time in our history when people were running really on instinct and um I just want him to be if i could have him be remembered for that and and do you think his
0: his running and his races and his his records have? Created a ripple that have carried on.
1: No, I don't. No, I don't. I, I don't. I, I, he was not. He was not a name on anybody's radar when mm. I found him in 2000. What was that? 11, 12. Man, COVID. But um, mm. he was not. He wasn't on anybody's radar. He was. Mm. A, this guy had put that wiki article up. Nobody found that. Nobody looked. I hadn't looked. Mm. You no, know, my friend, the guy over there in the the eighty square foot apartment he's still there he's still there. He did amazing runs. he won a race across Texas where it was so difficult the The situation with the race directors and the weather was so horrible that everybody dropped, but him he refused to drop. He wow. made them keep going and he ran a thousand miles across Texas. Nobody knows, nobody knows or He's not on anybody's radar.
0: And do you think, um, what do you think his son would think of him if he was to read
1: the book? Oh, man. I don't know. Uh, he was there for so much of it, you know. I think mm. that, uh, I I think it would, it would be a bitter pill for him, I think, to read certain bits. Mm. You know? Um mm. Because he, he knew the price that was paid yeah. for that. And he paid the price himself for a lot of that. So it's very and, difficult from that perspective. And, and do you think,
0: given the distances and the time of ultra running now, that you can have a, a balanced ultra running record breaker and champion? Or, or do you think they will always have to pay a price somewhere and, and be selfish
1: to achieve? Uh, you definitely have to be, I think. You look at people that are tremendously successful, they, they all pay a price. We all have to pay a price to to get something done. The question is is whether the price, whatever it is that you're going to have to pay, is it worth what it is, what, what it is that you want to do, and um, the people around you. Nick Saban, I don't know if you guys know him over there, but he's, he, he's the Alabama football coach here, and he's the winningest coach in college football history to won seven national championships. Um, he's a tremendously driven individual, perfectionist. Mm-hmm. and and uh, But his family, he's had to pay in a massive price. He's talked about it in interviews of wishing he had more time with his kids, wishing he had been there for this game or that game, mm-hmm. or being uh, there at the prom, you know, with, for his daughter, all the things that he missed out on. But they – they were a family that knew what they were getting into, you know. Uh, at least as far as the spouse was concerned, mm. uh, she he was he was always going to be a football coach, and uh, they did it together. And um, that's that's one thing. But he has he had, of course he had to pay a huge price, and he talks about these things. And mm. he, he if you want to be great at something, you're going to have to to pay a price. So um,
0: you've you've mentioned you know your. You want to write a book about your your neighbour? Are, are there any other kind of big epic stories and epic people out there that you'd like to tell their but, tale? But,
2: but wait, before you answer that, I, I really want to know what with your you know, your eighty square foot neighbour. Um, what was. What has been his reaction to this? Because he's, the, yeah. you know, he's kind of come full circle. He put you onto him in the first place. He obviously yeah, right. this guy in, in high esteem yeah. and thing. So what, you know, d- did he ever get a chance to speak to him? And what has he made of everything that, that has come out as a result of you you producing this book?
1: Mm. He doesn't talk to me, I can tell you that. Yeah. Why? doesn't talk to me. Um, he's in a stage of life. Where um, he just wants to go off like a dog that just wants to go off and be alone in his final time on the earth. That's the best way that I can describe it. He is an enigma. I've never fully understood him. And you could only get so close to that guy. But the way that I described him in the book uh, was just the way that I saw him <laughs> and the way that I experienced him and his glory and in his ugliness and in his quirkiness and his weirdness and i think we all want you know uh christian bale or somebody to play us in a movie of ourselves you know what i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> and somebody writes uh, a book so that the funnier bits I, I think he wanted to maybe look a little bit more heroic or something i i don't know i really don't know he said that he he really liked the book and he was glad it was written but i'll tell you something odd that that happened this is really bizarre and because you cause you you're, you brought up the fact that this kind of came full circle yeah Mm. It's it's unbelievable how it came around full circle It's just unbelievable I was on a golf course Last year And uh, trying to get away from this pandemic stuff And golf courses are kind of good at escapes There weren't many people Mm. there You could just go off, me and the wife And uh, play some golf Come back, I get an email from a private investigator Out of Paris Looking for him And it's got his first and last name And nobody really knew that. And it's saying, can you help me find this person? He's been unfindable. And I thought, by God, they've got him. They finally (laughs) He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to jail for the rest of his life for whatever it is that he did. I always assume he did something. I don't know. The guy is so secretive. Turns out that he had a brother back in France that he never knew. And the brother had just passed on and left him, like, 200,000 euros in a house. It was unbelievable. And they're like, we can't reach this guy. And we found your videos on YouTube where you were interviewing people about him. Do you know him? Can you get us in touch with him? And so if he hadn't turned me on to Al Howie, I never would have written the book. And if Mm. I hadn't written the book, he never would have known. They never would have found him because the guy has no cell phones, he's got no records. He is not only under the radar, there is no radar. He's just that far under it. And um, then if I hadn't written the book, then they wouldn't have found him. And then he wouldn't have known that he um, had this brother and whatnot and got this money. And I I don't know. He doesn't seem to care about the money or the fact that he had a brother. I I really don't. Mm. I can't get my fingers around him, but that's the way it is with people like that there. They're very rare, and um, that's the best way I can describe it. it. It has come around in a big circle in ways that I didn't expect. As far as other projects, I'm, I'm in a whole other genre with another book on an artist, that I, uh, another kind of lost person, uh, that I found one of his pieces of art in a thrift store, and it turned out that his work was also in the Met, and that was really bizarre and it, just tracking down this guy's life. He, he's also dead. I don't only want to write about dead people, you know. It's,
2: it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's I, much I'll, harder. I'll <laughs> yeah, it's a challenge.
1: I, I should take that back because Howie was very much alive, and it was a real mm. shock when he died. It was sudden. None of us expected that. Of course, he wasn't doing good, but there was some hope mm. because he had been improving. We got to where he would leave the nursing home and go stay uh with his wife slash ex-wife's family and then call me from there and it was like he was a different person. He would laugh, he would talk a lot more. It was a totally different environment. And there was some hope that he was getting better. If I could just add one little thing, is that mm. his grandfather had been institutionalized when I when I did the research on him and and he got out and he was okay for like eleven years. And suddenly wow. it was like an awakening. Suddenly he was okay. You know, oh wow he was catatonic he was yeah. institutionalized for schizophrenia mm. they were they were feeding him hand feeding him and suddenly he just woke up now i want to go home and they all him, what oh my god and they check him out he gets to go home and he was okay for like 11 years and then it he had a relapse or whatever and he had to be put back and we were kind of hoping that that would was going to happen with howie we were always talking about running together we were talking about you know, the future, uh, I did a, a race, and I had this hat team, Howie Shirt. You know, I did a, a couple of 12-hour runs. I was trying to get into his mindset a little bit. And um, there was just a great hope that he was going to bounce out of this somehow. Mm-hmm. And it just suddenly he didn't. He just he passed away very quickly. And it sucked because I was only about halfway, yeah, halfway through the book.
0: And, and what did he make of you writing the book, and, and how did he come across to you when he was talking about those times of his life?
1: Uh, he he very much wanted me to write the book. Uh, I, had, I want, really wanted to get his permission early on because I thought it was important, given the situation, mm. and uh, also I thought there was a lot to say about him. I thought that there was a great opportunity there for somebody that really had done some amazing things that people should know. Mm. And I would learn way more and get way more into the project later on. But even early on, I'm like, this, man, I've got to get this out there somehow. So I wanted to make sure that he was totally on board. He was, but he, um, I don't know what he, he made of it. I think he thought I was asking the wrong questions all the time, to be honest with you. <laughs> 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 and he was asking what are the right questions. He had no answer to that. So I, I don't know. He was grumpy. <laughs> yeah.
0: Amazing. Was grumpy. Well, if. um. If people want to buy this book we we've, we've got listeners all over the world but are, are there is there anywhere in particular that you kind of get more of the commission from if they buy it from that website that people we can direct them to
1: uh in the end it all works out uh, if you get it through Amazon it's available on Amazon it's the most accessible that way every once in a while it gets kind of backlogged but i think it was mainly due to the pandemic so my book came out you know just a few months before the pandemic mm. so i've just experienced it through the the pandemic So um, Amazon is always a safe bet. If you don't like Amazon, there are other third-party sellers that you can get it through. Um, Yeah, yeah, and even, you know, there there, there are other ways.
2: And just remind us, what's the full name of the book?
1: In Search of Al Howie.
2: In Search of Al Howie.
1: And if people want to follow your
0: future writing as well, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Jared Beasley. NY.com You can just I usually try to keep up a blog Of like the projects that are going on And things like that Uh, Like the artist I was mentioning a little while ago That Mm. I've been really working on that book And also the book on my My neighbor, both of those books during the pandemic Have been hardcore But uh, so I, I update them But sometimes I'll do an article here or there On those two subjects Usually and I usually make sure that I post Some kind of Flip It or something like that, you know, to snippet, it, you know, on the, um, on the blog. So just mm. Jared Beasley, NY, dot uh, that's it.
0: And, and do you think there are Al Harry's out there at the moment? You know, do, do you think there are these huge stories to tell in, in running and ultra running that won't be told? Or do you think we as a, a society and as a community change so much that there's so much greater awareness of everything that's happening?
1: Oh, I think they're out there, and I think that those people are always somehow going to slip through the cracks. Mm. I really do. And I think we were talking about—we started this whole thing with Rob Apple. It's probably fitting that we end with Rob Apple. I, mm. I think that that guy is a is a real experience. He, he is just something else. He's infectious when you talk to that guy. I want to keep calling him up even when I have nothing to ask him. It, it just—I just feel better when I talk to Rob Apple. <laughs> Seven hundred. <laughs> 759 <laughs> ultras. The guy is just a bundle of joy. He's made our list now. Speak to Rob Apple. Yeah,
0: I want to speak Rob. To Rob Apple. with Rob he,
1: Apple. He's got this hair like Steve May. You know, he looks like a combo of like Weird Al Yankovic and uh, Steve, Brian May. Sorry, Brian, Brian May the guitarist. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got that kind of hair and this, this massive smile, and he just wants to be out there as long as possible. And usually that. That means he's coming up, like, very close to the cutoff. <laughs> Fair
0: play. <laughs> yeah. well,
1: um, well, thanks
0: so much for coming on, Jared. Um, and that does sound like an incredible person, as does uh, Rob Apple. And do mm-hmm. let us know if you write another book that is in any way related to running. We'll, we'll get you back on to tell you about that as well. Absolutely. That. I-, I appreciate thanks it very sharing. much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank Our you. My pleasure. Take care. Ah, what a nice guy! Yeah, it was a nice guy. Really nice. It was actually really, really good. But it's very eloquent as well, wasn't he? You're never really sure with with uh, someone who's no. not necessarily trained in that area.
2: No, absolutely. You don't expect. You don't. That's interesting, isn't it? You expect someone who's eloquent on paper to be eloquent in person. But he was. Yeah, I, he tells a good story, doesn't he? That's yeah,
0: really good. And as we were saying before, um, I there, sometimes when I hear about a book, I yeah done great, don't have to read it now. Whereas actually, <laughs> that's so yeah, true. It yeah, did, it
2: did,
0: you did get the sense that this is you know he's he's covered some of the areas he could, but you know not not in, anywhere near the depth or the the breadth.
2: It's the way, isn't it? Because you, it, normally the story with a lot of books is, is almost a headline, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, so-and-so yeah. runs this thing or they've done it against the odds and something like that. And you like, you've read the headline. You Are they going to do it? Yes book. or no? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, but this one feels like it has much more colour to it and much more uh much more to reveal in that yeah. process as well because it's not as if you know you're as a piece of historical um you know fact checking you know this is what happened you know build up some context around it add a bit of color to it and everything you know you're actually trying to extract it from that person in different ways yeah. and so it's your interactions with that person that's also coloring what you write about that as well and that's got to be fascinating you know particularly particularly, uh, you know, the, the the issues that he has as well and having to deal with that in trying to extract that information and just everything around it as well. Just, you know, how he got that information and the fact that the, mm. uh, you know, his neighbour doesn't speak to him anymore. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just really interesting, really yeah. interesting how one thing leads to another.
0: And we get, we get quite emotionally involved with some of the people we talk to and, some of them become friends. Um, some of the issues you you, you get really you you just convinced by, and you're like, I I, I want to help with this. And imagine some people fight. don't
2: speak to us again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, genuinely, Tom Evans is uh, Tom Evans isn't messaging back to any of my messages. Tom, Tom some Evans. people don't
2: speak to us in the first place.
0: Yeah, true, true. Some people say they're coming on and then they don't. They um, don't. But anyway, but um, yeah, imagine. Five years of writing a, a relationship with you know that, and then the person dies before the the book's out, and yeah, he's still writing it, and it then comes out, and and the fact at the end of it, he's like, no, nah, he really hasn't created a ripple. Rip- rip.
2: That's but that's true, isn't it? It's like I, I, the thing is, you mm. said there, you know, a book about Laz will, you know, all sell well. Well, how well does that running book? I mean, very few running books break into the. I mean, it's, the fact is, most people don't know who Laz is. Most people, mm. like that's the thing. He, you know, he is the, probably the closest to an you know a, a director of a of an ultra marathon um, who has is the closest to being a celebrity in the wider yeah. world, and still he is you know ba- barely known. And so, you know, you take someone like um, you know Al and try and spin that into you know. I wonder if this book came out, say, 10 years ago, mm. it would be looked at in a different way, because it's very, it's, it, there's not much it, it's not particularly on vogue, is it to have someone who has all these issues, is a drinker, you know it seems to be going in the other direction.: of,
0: Yeah, of, the world of what,
2: wants of what, we of what we celebrate.: now. The
0: world wants heroes, doesn't it? Yeah, and: like, yeah, all exactly. pure. We
2: don't want heroes with no flaws whatsoever.
0: And yeah. That's it. And I love, yeah. you know
2: what, I love the comparison he made with artists and musicians and, you know, we yeah. expect, we expect that and, and, and running as an expression of yourself, and almost an art form. And actually, you don't expect your artists to be perfect. Mm. You don't expect your musicians to be per Well, they do expect them to be perfect. But, but, mm. you know, and so why do runners have to be the same way? Because people are running you know, different ways, and we there are always those heroes of running who you know had a few beers before they ran off and stuff like that. But it's just not even close to the same <laughs> level, is it? You know, oh, they have necked two beers, you know, on their Instagram before doing it. Oh man, what a hero! But I mean, you know, this it's is, a shame
0: this is we did. Level. It's a shame we've done this interview now and not two weeks ago because it would have been great if uh, Mike Mike Bisson was at the just did the Centurion Track Hundred Miler against the world champion and against you know some of the very best certainly in britain and europe and the world and it'd be great if he just turned up with a pint on the first lap i a think do bad is... so
2: just like said there sipping sipping away just but the thing yeah. is how if you saw that happening you what would you 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 think oh you're just doing it for attention like people, yeah just people wouldn't yeah. be shocked by it
0: they just go yeah They'd, they'd actually the just. The
2: BBR top.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they just think sad person. Why 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 are you so desperate to try and be out there as opposed yeah, to exactly. you're just loving life, aren't you? Yeah. Um, but do what what do you think of this episode? Um, let us know because we often there are often books about amazing people, and I've never been sure really whether it is a good format to have someone tell you about someone else. Um, I think it's worth this, I mean, this one I loved. And, I, and I'd say the other books have gone well as, as well in general, you know, when we've talked about, uh, well, where Way, Emia was telling us about her book, but uh, when we've had the story of the, the world record breaker, the 15 year old marathon world record and um, yeah, little Mo, Uh But yeah. What do you think of that dude bad is if you like this episode, some other good ones you could potentially listen to. Um, I mean, someone like Richard Bullock, he was really interesting. He's run across Australia, like, bought alligators, just a crazy amount of running. Rob Young, well, not Rob Young, Rob Pope. Young. <laughs> very, you different, Rob Young. very different. What that? <laughs> Rob Pope's run across America five times, and that was fascinating because he ran out of money halfway through, and he was talking about we we, you know, we were comparing now to then but actually you know rob he thought the sponsorship would suddenly unfold once he started going and you know, once he'd made it across america once and it it didn't turn out that way and you know there uh, there was a, as much a, an issue with funding and coming to terms with that as it was about the run yeah. itself um and uh, i don't know how nick's going to edit that last bit whether we <laughs> we we just had another chat with the with jared i don't know if that'll make it in or not <laughs> like, probably probably not because we've just been pimping out all these people and trading trading names and trading, people are thinking, Great. that's it that's it <laughs> yeah trading we've got some ama-
2: if we can if we can pull this off we've got some amazing people coming up who you may not have ever heard of um, yeah that's I've, that's the good thing about these conversations that it does lead to to hearing about more sort of like I will not say local legends but you know legends within the sport that maybe don't get don't get the exposure that they they kind of deserve but they're really interesting characters.
0: Yeah, and and the what I like about something like uh someone telling you about an individual they've written a book is that you know it's going to be incredibly condensed highlights of an amazing story um which can only be a good thing. But uh But then but yeah.
2: the thing is the thing is there's always there's sometimes a reason why someone has written a book about them because though that sometimes those people can't tell the story very well themselves.
0: <laughs> it shouldn't have been yeah. a book, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You're
2: like,
3: Should have been a pamphlet. No,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just an article for Run as well that got out of hand. Um yeah. But do is if you've got any other suggestions of, of books, of people, of stories that you want us to cover, then messages uh, david at badboyrunning.com or messages on instagram if you want to ask questions for future guests as jared said follow us on the instagram page and we say in advance who's going to be coming on and you can ask the questions there
2: You've anything you want to throw the in there jane yeah if you want to join the conversation head over to facebook type in bad boy running podcast and join the throng of do who are generally messing about on mark Zuckerberg's wonderful wonderful platform <laughs> that got a bit weird You <laughs> did get a bit weird didn't it i don't know what i was really going to go with there I, just, I thought i'd change it up a bit but it, you just
0: ran out of work. you ran out of commitment to what you were saying
2: commitment as soon as i said mark zuckerberg i thought i thought you bastard I <laughs> um, kind of gave up. Um Yeah. Yeah. You well, you, head over The Facebook group's great. It's really, really good. So head over there, even if Mark Zuckerberg is following your every every bloody move. i just feel like it's uh, one of those things like Facebook's one of these things like it's like a necessary evil, isn't it?
0: It um, is. It is sadly. But um whoever is the first do batter to start a hundred miler with a pint gets a special prize. We're putting it out there. We're putting it out there. It's the new do batter start. A B sprint start or you ID pine or ID you play. um <laughs> but that's it guys and we'll see you next time ba-da-bye, bye 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 I must admit i was a clone to be messing around but that doesn't mean that you ought to leave don't come back yes and give me one more try cuz i know Fuck you, buddy!